What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. We are uh, back from a couple of weeks break. We've been doing those a little bit recently, but uh, Surfiel had a major life thing going on that I got to be a part of. And I think right now things will get kind of settled down for you a little bit, Surfiel, now that you're kind of situated where you are. We'll see. We've got some some more changes on the horizon, constant metamorphosis. Yeah, yeah. So, but changes. Right. The only thing is constant is change, right? There you go. We've got a return guest, one we haven't had on in. Uh, quite a few years i think since 2019 and he was actually a speaker at the very first strange realities conference first one back in 2019 as well yeah and uh that's zach hunt zach welcome back to conspiracy normal thank you it's a privilege and honor to to be back and, and chatting with you guys yeah zach is uh zach is actually right here in in nashville and um he's actually put up some billboards or like uh, some signage in Nashville, which is causing a little bit of a stir of a stir, but that's because he has released a new book called God breathe. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode. So I guess we'll just uh, jump right in Zach. I mean, kind of the typical question that I always ask everybody is uh, what inspired you to write uh, this particular book? Well, I thought, you know, the quickest way to get rich is to write a really small niche book that you know 12 right. people will read and uh <laughs> right exactly really my, my plan all along um you know honestly it's kind of a a funny story it's it's been a book that unintentionally has been in process for almost 10 years um the very first book that i ever wrote um did not quite make it to the finish line um, I wrote a book and it had, uh, it's about holiness. So even more niche, you know, so my get rich quick schemes are, are working out quite well. Um, <laughs> but 
Hey, yeah. well, you know, we're we're getting all kinds of rich over here, man. So you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how how niche compared to some of our stuff. So. <laughs> right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, what was he say? Oh, so anyway, so I write. I wrote a. The book was going was going well, or I thought it was going well, and it was to the point where you know it was on the cover of the publisher's fall catalog. Um, and it was going ready, uh, getting ready to you know go through the final edits and then actually be printed, you know, and be released that fall. And I got a call from my editor and that summer, I guess, July, I was like, Hey, you know, we need to talk. And I thought it was about a, a, uh, a marketing meeting that we had scheduled. And he's like, we need to talk about a blog post that you wrote. And I was like, we're well, gonna have to be more specific because this was back in 2014 when I was posting, you know, just a writing just about every day. And he's like, well, it's the one about the Bible. I was like, okay, um, not thinking anything of it because to me it wasn't particularly scandalous. Um, I mean, I knew it was provocative, but um, it didn't have anything to do with the book. Like it wasn't something like a subject that you know was in the book at all. So I didn't think that they were relevant. But the title of the post was "The Bible Isn't Perfect" um, and it says so itself. And and it was a riff off of this very passage that I use at the that the book God breathed the centered on um and taking this idea that just that when Paul says that the Bible or that scripture because the Bible did not exist when he was writing is God breathed that that's not a declaration of its perfection but the opposite because the only other thing in scripture really that it is God breathed are people you know in Genesis God takes the dirt from the ground and breathes you know the dust into into people and people were even in the garden never perfect so anyway um we had a, a fun conversation when I was I was told that I was outside the bounds of evangelical orthodoxy. Um, I uh, informed him that there was no such thing as evangelical orthodoxy, and um, that conversation went about as well as you could imagine. It turned out that uh, <laughs> Ken Ham of the Creation Museum uh, had oh. seen an article and wrote an article about me and and um, how I was a heretic and learning all these blasphemies from Yale and blah 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 blah. Anyway, long story short, we decided to part ways. Um, uh, my friend of mine uh, actually had the catalog and sent it to me, and I'm looking at it right now because I framed it and put it in my office as kind of a, a motivational tool um, to keep writing. But but that idea, you know, was a, I don't know what's a good, terrible cliche, a seed that got planted mm -hmm. um, in the back of my mind. It's an idea that I've come back to several times and uh and yeah, I, I was able to pitch it to my publisher that I wrote Unraptured um, uh, with, and and they really liked it and gave me the freedom um, to to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the it's a book about the Bible. It's a book about inerrancy. It's about, you know, the story of the Bible, where it came from. But ultimately, you know, what I hope it is, is, you know, permission um, for folks like me who grew up in conservative fundamentalist, you know, type traditions um, to have the freedom to ask questions, to doubt, to push back, to criticize, to even, you know, disagree with the Bible or their faith or, or what they've been taught in ways that, you know, they haven't had the freedom to do that before. All right. Yeah. It's Ken Ham's fault. It's, it's the long and short. Oh, Ken Ham's fault. Yeah. I, and I do remember that when that happened with Ken Ham. I, I, so let's dig into this a little bit. Let's talk about your viewpoint on the Bible. Well, first of all, what did you believe about the Bible growing up? up what was your viewpoint on it and how did this start to change did you start to look at the, look at it differently it's a great question you know growing up you know the bible was for me you know god enfleshed in paper and ink 
you know, to some extent, um, you know, I talk about this in the book, book about being afraid to, you know, even put anything on top of it, you know, on a shelf or, uh, writing in, you know, seemed disrespectful. And so, you know, I held it, uh, held it up very high, you know, if I didn't worship it alongside God, you know, it was pretty darn close. And so, you know, for me, the Bible was something that, you know, if it didn't drop from heaven, it, it, it was dictated by God, you know, in, in some fashion. And so it was beyond questioning, you know, it was the word made the word made words. Um, and so, you know, for me, the Bible was beyond questioning, you know, it was just, it was the authority. Um, you know, if there was something in it that I was supposed that it said to do, then I had to do it. If there was something that said, don't do, then I didn't do it. Um, there wasn't a lot of thought, you know, or reflection, uh, you know, growing up into much of that. It was the only real thought and wrestling that I think I did with scripture when I was younger. And even into my teenage years was trying to deal with like, you know, the hard stuff like the genocide in the old Testament or slavery passages in the new Testament. Right. Uh, you know, I think the, the first time I began to rethink the Bible or, or my relationship with the Bible and understanding the Bible, you know, was what I recorded in, in unraptured when I was really into end times theology, really into the rapture, really into that stuff and had a, you know, come to Jesus talk with a professor, you know, who told me um, that, you know, maybe we are living in the end times, but we have been ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb and that, you know, revelation is not a secret code for the future. And, stuff like that. And it, it really ticked me off and, and rocked my world and eventually made me, you know, sit and think, you know, about what assumptions that I had and what possibility there was that I could be wrong, which was obviously infinitesimal. I was never, you know, wrong about anything. And so that, you know, I think that really was the first moment um, that began a journey uh, of several years of, of trying to deal with scripture in a way that was, spiritually healthy and intellectually honest, you know, because even after that, you know, I still saw the Bible as, you know, my key to heaven, you know, if I believed it, then I would go to heaven and and not go to hell. Um, and then as my weapon, you know, as my sword of faith to wield against, you know, enemies, foreign and domestic. Um, but I think the most pivotal moment came, um, you know, honestly, right around that time, uh, with Ken Ham, you know, and, and that sort of debacle. Uh, I was in class and one of our, our professors, uh, his Old Testament theology class, and we were looking at a passage from Deuteronomy. And this is a story that's in the book. Um, and it's a command uh, that seems to be from God that if you have bratty children, that you should take them out of the camp and stone them to death. And so the professor, you know, tosses that out and says, well, what do you do with that passage? And, you know, for me growing up in Sunday school, you know, this is the fun stuff, right? Like, oh, we're going to come up with these brilliant theological workarounds, you know, these mental gymnastics come up with an answer. And, and that's what everybody did. You know, people went around the classroom and, and had different ideas and, you know, a lot of answers that, you know, I grew up with or type of answers I grew up with, you know, in um, evangelicalism. Oh, it doesn't matter anymore. It's the Old Testament or, um, you know, things like that. And, you know, he finally came back to him after about, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. He said, well, what if the Bible is just wrong? And, you know, I was, gosh, in my thirties at that point. And, you know, it, it always, I knew that the Bible was, could be, could be wrong about things like science, you know, or history or like the number of uh, people in an army or a town or things like that. But like, this was a whole other category because what he was saying wasn't just that the Bible 
you know, recorded something, you know, inaccurately, but that it was teaching something that was morally wrong. Um, and that was a bombshell for me to be able to step back and say, like he did, you know, if this appeared anywhere else in any other piece of literature in the world, we would never hesitate to condemn it as immoral. And so he says, you know, why, why can't right. we say that about the Bible? Um, and that was really a huge shift in my thinking of being able to, to, uh, to, to admit that. And then along came a guy named Origen, who's one of the early church fathers who, you know, kind of helped put uh, flesh on the bones of that idea of, of saying, well, you know, actually it's okay, you know, that the Bible isn't perfect and, and there's things to be gleaned and learned from that imperfection. Well, let's expound on that a little bit because that's that's that ties into my next question, which is the concept of biblical inerrancy. In other words, the Bible is completely correct about all things. I think there's several different ways to look at this, but there's like one school of thought that like every jot and tittle is like completely, you know, inerrant, and you know, and we, and we are talking about a book that has been translated several different times from several different languages. Let's talk about that whole concept of biblical inerrancy and how some of the the early church fathers, but then also like the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox, how they actually viewed view that. So inerrancy, um, you know, there there is certainly a bit of a spectrum, you know, of definitions for that concept. Yeah. You know, the most general one, you know, is that the Bible is is without error. Um, you know, some people will get more nuanced with that a little bit, you know, so they'll make space and say, you know, it's okay if the gospel of Matthew wasn't technically written by Matthew, you know, and, and they're okay with something like that. Sorry, my kids are, you know, as, as kids are, want to do, um, totally. It's okay. Don't take them outside the camp and and stone them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Inerrancy. So, yeah, I mean, for, for most people, but it, what it's come to mean and really what it meant, you know, when it was first really invented in the 19th century um, is that the Bible is just that, that it it's right about everything. It's right about science. It's right about history. It's right about theology. It's right about blah, blah, blah. Um, and that occurs, you know, for a couple of reasons. Historically, it's a response to uh, the Enlightenment um, and then also Darwin in particular, who, you know, a, uh, offers an approach to uh, our origin story that is obviously radically different than what you read in Genesis. And so you have this, this felt need, well, not felt need. I mean, you have this loss of authority, loss of prestige, you know, for the Bible and for the church and for the people who run the church, um, you know, in the early or the late 19th century or 20th century. And so they're, they're trying to hold on to that, um, as much as possible. And so that's, that's pushing some of it. Some of it is fear, you know, the unknown and new ideas. Um, but a lot of it is connected, uh, to Martin Luther, um, 500 years ago, when he starts this idea of salvation by faith alone, he's reacting to the Catholic church, you know, and their corruption and their, you know, uh, indulgences and basically buying your way out of purgatory and buying your way into heaven and that sort of thing. Um, but the idea of salvation by faith alone has come to mean salvation by right ideas. And so Christianity has become a zero sum game where if I, if I don't want to go to hell, if I want to go to heaven, I just need to believe the right things. Well, if, if that's the key to salvation is the right list of ideas, then you need the Bible to be perfect because you need to, to know that it has all those right ideas that get you to heaven. Um, now, like you're saying, like, that's not how the Bible has always been understood. You know, the Bible's always been held 
um, you know, in high regard. I mean, that's, you know, beyond dispute. Um, but it has been an authority alongside the church, not authority unto itself. Like that's a big distinction that you see in the Reformation, um, where Martin Luther and the other reformers um, come up with this doctrine called sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. And so what they're trying to claim is that scripture is its own authority um, and that it can be understood by itself in an authoritative way, which is ironic because they all immediately disagreed about the clarity of scripture alone and immediately all started their own different traditions and churches. Um, but going back sure. before then, you know, scriptures, you know, you can find people in the early church that talk about scripture in really high and lofty ways um, that sound similar to inerrancy that sounds similar, um, you know, to ideas of perfection and things like that, but they, but you run into a lot of anachronisms there. Um, you know, one being language, you know, itself, like you were talking about translations. I mean, these guys are writing in Greek and Latin, um, not English, you know, and so how we translate what they say, you know, matters. And then you have the problem with a lot of these church fathers too, um, aren't always speaking about the Bible uh, because the Bible didn't exist. You know, the Bible doesn't get canonized, meaning like really completed, so to speak, um, until the fourth century when they decide, okay, this is the list of books and, and these aren't included. And so sometimes when these early church fathers are talking about, you know, the divine scriptures and perfection and God's word, some of them can be referring to books that didn't make the cut, like first Clement, um, or something like that, that, you know, we wouldn't consider scripture today. So, you know, the Bible, what I try to do with, with God breathed, um, you know, especially in the first half of it is to tell the story of the Bible, not the Bible story, like Genesis, Exodus, but like where the Bible actually came from, how it was composed, how it came together um, and that sort of thing. But then also how fundamentalism comes into play and how they begin to hijack things um, about a hundred years ago and begin to re-narrate history to suit, you know, their own list of doctrines and things that they believe, you know, are essential because, you know, whether you grew up in church, I think a lot of us, you know, think we understand or have a bit a grasp on what the Bible is. And if you did grow up in church and you did grow up in Sunday school, then the Bible is, is basically like a family member. And so we we bring all these assumptions and uh, ideas that, you know, to the Bible before ever picking it up. And so it's really hard to even, you know, read the words on the page sometimes because we have so much dogma and doctrine that we bring to it. And so, you know, the goal here with, with, with the book and then even with the billboard just to hopefully shock some senses, you know, into people and to get them to maybe look at it again um, with new eyes. And so essentially what characterizes a lot of what's called fundamentalism nowadays is not necessarily fundamental to the intentions and, and earlier interpretations of, of the religion. Exactly. So I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the concept of orthodoxy um, because it's a word that gets thrown around, you know, a lot. Like you'll see it in gay marriage debates when they start talking about, you know, orthodox, blah, blah, blah. Orthodox, um, orthodoxy has a very specific definition and a very specific context. Uh, you know, Christian orthodoxy, to speak of Christian orthodoxy, you have to first be able to speak of some speak of Christianity as a singular thing, um, which it never has been. Um, from the very beginning, Christianity was all sorts of different, you know, groups moving around. And some of those traditions still exist, like in Ethiopia um, or Syria and some places like that. 
Um, but if we're going to talk about Christian orthodoxy, we are talking about creeds and confessions of a unified church. And the closest we have to a unified church is the first thousand years of Christianity. Um, in 1054, we have a giant split, a schism. This is where the orthodox tradition is created. So anything after that is not, or you can't speak of orthodoxy in a broad spectrum um, of any doctrines or ideas that come after that. What you have or orthodoxies specific to different traditions. So like the Baptist church has its essential own orthodoxy, the church of Christ, the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Nazarenes, everybody has their own core beliefs that, you know, they set aside. The problem is when you or I take our Methodist or Lutheran and say, no, our tradition is orthodoxy. And so that's what you have with fundamentalism. Fundamentalism comes from um, a pamphlet uh, that was produced by a couple of brothers or, I think they're maybe just businessmen in the 19th century early 1900s, and it was called the fundamentals. Um, they're responding to Darwin. They're responding, you know, in, in part two, the enlightenment, but to historical critical theory. And they're trying to say, actually, here are the fundamental um, tenets of the Christian faith. But what they're doing is deciding for themselves what these tenets are. And some of them, you know, are ancient you know, the, uh, theology of the church. So like the virgin birth or the resurrection. Um, but what the, what's new and what they're adding is the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Um, it's uh, biblical inerrancy does not appear in any confession or creed in any Christian tradition uh, before 1910, when the Presbyterian church at their general assembly adopts it um, as one of the five fundamentals. And so um, you can you can say, and this is what what they'll say, or biblical inerrantist proponents will say, oh, well, there's a there's this long tradition of you know biblical inerrancy throughout the church, and they'll proof text with quotes from people and things like that. Um, but again, um, orthodoxy doesn't work on assumptions. Orthodoxy is something that's very clear and 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 decisive. It's something that's pr it's produced by creeds and councils. And the most assumed doctrine in the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but that's still the very that's one of the very first things we put down on paper as as a church and say this is what we believe. Um, and so inerrancy, you can believe that it can be your orthodoxy or your version of orthodoxy, but it is not historical Christian orthodoxy. And that's an a point that I really try to uh, drive home in the book. Right. It's an important distinction. If you deny the historical and cultural context from thousands of years ago of these books, then that's going to make it even harder to question your own historical and cultural context that you're trying to view this stuff in now. Exactly. Well, and that's, you know, and that's another critical point that I try to, you know, beat home as well is, or um, drive home as well is, you know, the, the biggest problem that we have in biblical interpretation, whether, you know, it's an errant, it, whether you believe in errancy or not, is the way that we try to cut ourselves out of the equation and try to present, you know, Bible verses or even chapters or stories as if they're the unfiltered word of God um, and ignore the fact that even in choosing to quote, you know, this verse versus another verse, we are playing a, a critical role in interpretation and application. And that's inescapable, right? Like that that in and of itself is not a bad thing. The problem comes when we pretend as if we're just speaking for God, um, as if the Bible is just clear and plain and, you know, Zach has nothing to do with it. I'm just, you know, saying what Jesus said. And that's just simply not the case. Well, I mean, one thing that I want to, you know, drive home with the point that there's so many people that, that hold, and I'm sure that you were one of them, Zach, that and and I think I was for in so many so many ways that that 
you can hold a lot of these kind of truths and you think that these are like time honored and just, you know, but much like, you know, the, like the rapture and, um, that you talk about in, in one of your previous books that, you know, this was something that was, that was called created by the Plymouth brethren. A lot of people don't understand that a lot of these things that people take as a, like real doctrine now were things that was real, that are really less than 200 years old. They're not 2000 years old and in, in conception. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we, we all suffer like from a myopathy of the present or a myopathy of living memory, you know, of, you know, once the folks die out, you know, who experience something different then all we know is all we know. And it, that's just the way that it always was. Um, and if we don't put in the work to step back and, you know, ask questions, then it's easy to think that the rapture is ancient Christian theology or that biblical inerrancy is ancient or creationism, right. you know, or, or any of these right. things, because there aren't people around anymore um, who are alive when they weren't. Yeah. And something like creationism is very much, I mean, it goes in tandem, hand in hand with that kind of this biblical inerrancy, even though you have things like Bishop Usher from like the 17th century when he's doing his calculations and those type of things, which where you get the 6,000 year old earth, but, you know, but, but you drive home the point that a lot of this was because of what was written in the fundamentals and how a lot of it was because of Darwin. And I mean, you talk about the scopes monkey trial in there as well. Yeah. And, you know, there were certainly people before Darwin who believed in literal six day, you know, creation for sure. But there's also people um, who accepted Darwin when he came around, you know. And so, you know, what one of the other you know ideas that I'm trying to expose folks to is that there's a lot of space in Christian theology for very differing ideas, um, you know, because like I'm sure we'll get to eventually. My point in the book is that, you know, the fundamental guide um, both this foundation and finish line for reading the Bible has to be learning to love your neighbor. Um, but you can learn to love your neighbor and believe that the resurrection literally physically happened, or that you can believe that the resurrection is like a metaphor or something. Um, you know, there's space for both of those things. Um, if, you know, we begin, you know, in a place where, uh, you know, love, like Jesus told us, you know, in the greatest commandment is, is our foundation and our guide. But, you know, Ironically, as we talked about in the book, you know, for all the fundamentals that they lay out for the Christian faith, the one that they never ever mention um, is love. It's not in the pamphlets, and right. it's not any church uh, list of what we believe either. Yeah, and I hold that thought because I definitely want to get to that. But let's talk a little bit more about the title of the book, "God Breathed," and uh, what do you mean by that word, "God Breathed," and How's this kind of a different way of looking at like biblical inspiration, the inspiration of the writers, essentially? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the thing about Gabriel is it's it's unique. Um, you know, it does not. The word is is a Greek word, theonustos, um, meaning literally God breathe, theo being God, nustos, meaning spirit or breath. Um, so God breathe. Uh, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, it doesn't seem to be a very common Greek word. Paul uses lots of, you know, kind of weird words. Um, and there's not a Hebrew, you know, equivalent. The Hebrew word for like breath is ruach. Um, and so 
you know, it's kind of a tricky word. One thing that is is agreed upon, whether you're liberal, um, fundamentalist, or somewhere in between, is that you know Paul is saying that Scripture is inspired. Um, you know, that's pretty clear from the text. Um, what's not clear is what that inspiration looks like. Um, and that's where, you know, the, the fun begins and where people start going off in, in, in different directions. The you know, interesting thing to me is that, you know, Paul doesn't feel, seem to feel the need to define that word for Timothy um, or for, you know, anyone else that, that may be reading. There seems to be this under, the almost understanding that like, you know, Timothy knows what he's talking about or what this image talks about. But, you know, 2000 years later, we're left, you know, a little bit in the dark and, trying to figure out what it, what it means. And so when I was writing that post, you know, 10 years ago that Ken Ham loved so much, um, you know, <laughs> I tried to, to draw from, you know, my biblical training, my training in biblical exegesis, which tells me, you know, to start with the immediate, immediate context and just kind of work your way out. And, you know, there's nothing in the immediate context that defines that word. And so you kind of have to move out and move out. And, you know, as I moved out in scripture, I found one place, really the only other place where something is described as being God breathed. I mean, God breathes in different moments in scripture, but only one other thing is described as being God breathed. And that's people, like we said at the beginning, where God takes dirt from the ground and breathes into them. And and when I read that, I say, okay, well, maybe Paul's saying something completely different than what I thought. You know, maybe he's acknowledging that you know scripture is written by people because he's literally writing scripture as he's saying that. And people aren't perfect. You know, even in the garden, um, we we call it a fall, but there's no fall um recounted in the gar uh, in, in Genesis. If anything, the Adam and Eve acquire um something because they're eating from the tree of knowledge, so they're learning. What happens is a broken relationship. Um, but they weren't perfect to begin with because you know, the Christian faith professes that only God is perfect. So if we're going to start saying that, well, if God inspired the Bible, ergo, the Bible has to be perfect, then what we're doing is making God a fourth member of the, uh, God, making the Bible a fourth member of the Trinity. Um, and that creates this idolatrous situation where the mm-hmm. Bible just becomes a sanctified weapon to beat over the heads of our enemies. And so for me, when I look at this word, I, you know, I'm trying to understand it in the context of this biblical story. Um, I try to understand well, what what does God breathedness look like? What what is happening? Um, and if we you know take Genesis as our guide um, and this idea of of the Spirit, well, the Ruach is is the life of of God. I mean, it's God is breathing Spirit. We are becoming that dirt. Our our lungs is being inspirited and dwelt by the Spirit. And so for me, God breathed is is an uh, is a life giving act. You know, it's God giving life to humanity. It's God giving life to our story, which is what the Bible is. And so in that sense, then the Bible becomes, to me, this living document. And so to say that it's inspired means not this magical literary you know, mechanism that, that control the biblical writers, but that God has breathed life into it so that it is inspired to in turn inspire us or indwell us with this same life to go out and breathe that life into the world. And so when we turn the Bible into a weapon, we're doing the very opposite you know, of that. And when we make it a weapon of death, we are blaspheming the Bible itself because it's supposed to be this life-giving thing, this this breath of life, this breath of God. Um, and so that's like the fun, my fundamental, you know, in the book, my fundamental basis for everything else I say is understanding what it means for the Bible to be inspired. Well, what that means to me and what I think it meant to Paul is that the Bible is supposed to be life-giving. 
And, and if it's not life-giving, then we're not using it or understanding it in the right way. And Jesus seemed to be saying the same thing when they asked him, well, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and love and life are, are really two sides of the same coin because God is love and God creates, God breathes out spirit out of love. And so if the Bible is not a book of love and a book of life, then I don't know how we can call it inspired. You also make the point that when we say that the word, the word of God, that the actual word, the actual logos is actually Christ himself. Right. Right. So um, one of the billboards that got rejected uh, just said the Bible is not the word of God. Um, and then well, that's inflammatory. That's that's. <laughs> I can see how that would be inflammatory. Yeah. Right. Um, that was the least inflammatory of the inflammatory ones that they got rejected. Um, but you'll have to tell us later which what what got rejected. Oh, absolutely. Um, but but it's not. Now it is and it's not. And that's kind of the point of you know the provocative billboard. Um, you know, the church has always right. described the Bible as the uh lowercase w word of God, meaning like an oracle or the wisdom, you know, or you know, how mm-hmm. whatever description but the idea of the word um as this like esoteric kind of being or or incarnated wisdom um you know john 1 7 is very specific that you know in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and that word was jesus um you know the bible is unequivocal that the word right. the capital w word is jesus um you know and so the problem is when again, I, I, I harp on Luther and the reformers here a lot, is when these ideas become bound and easily accessible in our pockets, they and when they are combined with the need to be perfect and right, because those perfect right ideas are our salvation, um, then the little w word of God becomes the big W word of God on my shelf because I need it to be because it's my key uh, to getting out of hell. I wanted to add something about what you're talking about, about how the Bible is extolled very much. So one of the things that I remember um, from my previous marriage was that she would, and she was from Brazil. She's from another country. And um, one of the things that she would do is she would open the Bible and just point to a phrase and she would say, Oh, this is what God is telling me. And in my discussions with a few other people, I like, realized that that's something called bibliomancy. And like, in other words, you're using it as like a form of, 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 and when you said the word Oracle, it reminded me of that. It's, it's a yeah. form of, it's a form of, uh, would you, would you say almost like magic Sophia in a way? Yeah, like a folk it's divination. It's a folk divination. That's what I'm looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I just want your thoughts on that to tell how some people can just have it can be extolled so highly that you're almost using it and almost like and in that in a way that a lot of like evangelicals were probably frown on in a lot right. of ways. And you did say the word idolatry earlier, so you know right. if it's yeah right. fetishization and then ultimately idolatry. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think a lot of modern Christianity is indistinguishable from magic, you know, particularly evangelicalism. You know, I was taught that if I went down 
and bent my knee at a wooden altar and said a specific phrase that my soul would be liberated from hell. How is that different than casting a spell? You know, um, like you're talking about the divinization, like with the oracles and things like that. Like, you know, how is flipping open a Bible and pointing to it and saying, oh, this was a spirit leading me any different than the Oracle of Delphi, you know, 2000 years ago in Greece. And, you know, those sorts of accusations obviously would, you know, annoy uh, evangelicals and, and uh, uh, Catholics, you know, do some very similar things, um, you know, because a lot of, you know, cultural traditions get mixed into Christianity right, um, right. For, for good and for bad, you know? Right. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, let me step back. You know, I think one of the great ironies of Christianity, uh, you know, in its its tragic history of like witch hunts and and things like that, is that there's a lot of projection going on there. That there's a lot of insecurity going on there because, um, you know, certainly there's this sense that they feel like they're fighting the devil, you know, and the enemy. Um, but as you you know come towards modernity, um, you know, in the last couple of centuries, and you see people like frowning on that kind of thing as like uncouth. Um, you know, and weird and, and and whatever, you know, slander you want to cast against, you know, Wiccans and stuff like that. Well, Catholics go to church every Sunday and eat the body and blood of Jesus. Like, that's weird, man. You know, like, just call it what it is. Now, I'm okay with that, but I'm also weird, you know. And so, you know, a, a, a part, part of, you know, this book is, is really calling folks to self-awareness, Mm-hmm. You know, self-awareness of of what it is that we do with the Bible, what our assumptions are about it, our assumptions about the faith, you know, and and the things that we do, um, you know, as Christians that, you know, are the things that we do that, you know, are odd. And, you know, we're so quick to demonize, you know, others and point fingers when, you know, we're practicing a lot of the same sorts of things. We just give them different names, um, you know, and and you know maybe the practice isn't bad but like let's at least be honest you know about what we're doing and what we're saying um you know and and things like that i mean you get in the bible the bible's got some awesome weird stuff i mean you get the witch of indoor in the old testament i mean you got saul consulting you know mediums you get jesus you know gets crucified and you got the zombie apocalypse in in jerusalem (laughs) if you don't believe me that's true yeah go read the gospels um you know, you've got ghosts all all throughout the Bible. Um, Ezekiel was one super weird dude, might have had an encounter with the UFO. Who knows? Um, you know, and so like there there is a sense, I think, a deep sense in Christianity of respectability. You know, um, it it was once referred to as the queen of the sciences. And so when you show like when the enlightenment shows up and you get people like, you know, like Thomas Paine um, or then Darwin later on that seem to be like criticizing and pushing back um, or Thomas Jefferson, who just goes through and cuts that literally cuts out the miracles and stuff like that. Um, you know, Christianity is trying and a lot of folks in Christianity. I mean, Christianity is very diverse. But a lot of folks in Christianity are trying to rediscover or to reclaim that respectability. Um, and so even though a lot of the things that, that we believe in are frankly weird um you know we say oh no no this is this is you know christian this is sanctified this is holy um sometimes the holy is weird you know and that's okay um you know so again like i think one of the greatest tragedies of the christian faith today is our lack of Mm self-awareness yeah i would agree with that i mean we've talked exhaustively about you know especially in the charismatic 
churches, this evolution that's going on that I'd almost call like a paranormalization of parts of American Christianity, which, like you said, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but to have something that that is that unorthodox and vows yourself as being orthodox and fundamentalist is just, it's out of control. Yeah. You know, and I, I as I get older, um, I'm not that old. I just turned 40, but I feel older in my bones. I'm about um, to. <laughs> well, I, get ready because like two weeks after you turn 40, your hip's going to start just hurting. Like out of nowhere, it makes no sense. Maybe just go ahead and schedule an appointment. Um, you know, but I, I care less about what people believe and more about how they live or how more specifically how they love, um, you know, their neighbor. Um, like, I, you know, you believe whatever you want. Like, you know, if, if you think whatever crazy idea you think, but like, if, if that leads you to loving your neighbor, great. Cause like, if you have some really sophisticated theology that sounds really great and jives with whatever 18th century, you know, philosopher, but then you're using that theology to like marginalize and damn and oppress people. I don't want any part of that. I like, I'm not impressed by that. You know, I'd rather have people with, you know, simple, mystical, weird faith that are really good at loving their neighbor or no faith at all that are really good at loving their neighbor um, than people who are really good at theology and really bad at loving their neighbor. And I think that's what Jesus says over and over and over again in the new Testament and what he describes judgment day as being as, as a judgment of, did you know of your neighbor? Not how good was your theology? Right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when the Bible is wrong, what do we do? How do we treat it? Honestly, and I I think that's the challenge. I think even in like a lot of progressive circles, we still try to do mental gymnastics to get around those things, you know, because the idea of the Bible being always right is so ingrained in our imagination and in our theology that just admitting that it's wrong is hard. I mean, like I said, you saw Jaws drop, I saw Jaws drop in a classroom full of, a bunch of, you know, what Ken Ham would call crazy liberals at Yale, you know, at the idea that the Bible could just be morally wrong. Um, I think the best way to deal with that is to admit it. When Paul says, slaves obey your masters for you, it is right in the Lord. Paul is wrong. There is no situation in which that is correct. There is no mental gymnastics to make that okay. There's no cultural context in which that is ever okay. It is awful. Um, it is, it's just wrong. And Paul, I think, could bring himself to say that in retrospect, because yeah. Paul himself admits that we we see through a mirror dimly. Now, as a kid, you know, and even as an adult, like for whatever reason, mostly because I'm dumb, I thought of that passage as like, oh, well, this is like seeing we can't quite see heaven, right? We see through a window and it's and it's uh it's hazy. And so, you know, our limited human knowledge, we can't quite understand, but like, that's not, you know, how mirrors work, you know, mirrors reflect back on us. 
And if we see scripture in that context, if we see scripture is, is not just the story of the people of God, but a mirror to reflect back on us, back on us, then what I begin to see is me. Not that I'm approving slavery, but I see when I see the people of God constantly screwing up, when I see the people of God putting putting words in the mouths of God, doing terrible things in the name of God, I see what the church continues to do today. Um, And if we can name what we're doing today wrong, then there's no reason we can't do that as well. And the Bible seems to be open to that as well, not just with Paul acknowledging the fact that you know, we are seeing through a mirror dimly, but so does the Hebrew Bible. If we look at Judges, which is one of the oldest books in the entire Bible. In fact, Judges 5 may be the oldest passage ever written down um, in the Bible. It, it bookends with this idea that in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and then what you read in between those bookends is a story of the people of God doing heinous things in the name of God. And so it's almost like judges are saying, this this is not okay, and this is wrong, even if they say it's in the name of God. And so I think what we have to learn to do is to be comfortable with what Origen, the early church father, called stumbling blocks, that he said that the Holy Spirit allowed to be in there in the Bible to draw us deeper beyond the literal meaning to a spiritual truth. And you know that doesn't mean we need to do more in mill gymnastics to find some amazing, inspiring spiritual truth about genocide, you know, in the Old Testament, it means that sometimes the spiritual truth is these people are just like us. They're sinners, they're flawed, and they get it wrong sometimes. And that's okay. Not what they did was okay, but it's okay to admit that what they did was wrong because they're people. But you know what? Like God met them there with grace and love and redemption, and that is there for us as well. And to me, that's good news. And that's good news that can be found even in biblical imperfection. And also, too, you are okay with some of this being myth. So there could be things yeah. that, like, the, some of these, the, 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 it's possible that the genocide that is described in, like, the book of Joshua, that that could have actually never happened. Right. That's another chapter in the book, too, is, you know, we have to yeah. reorient our minds around the concept of truth and myth, you know, because so many of us have been conditioned to believe that myth means untrue um, when that couldn't be further from the truth, you know, myth has the ability to teach truth in a way that history doesn't because it's not bound by context, you know, in particular histories and people. And the Bible relies on that a lot um, because it embraces these stories and says, you know what, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a myth, but you know what, it tells truth um, that we recognize in our story of, of Noah, which was is almost directly lifted from that. But the people of God were okay with that because they they saw the truth in it. Not in the fact that they saw Noah build an ark, but they saw the truth of God's caring for them, of God's um, walking with them through times of trial, of God providing for them. They saw that truth demonstrated in their own lives. And that's why those stories made in the Bible, not because they could prove them historically, because even today we have zero evidence um, for the Exodus. We have almost zero evidence for the conquest of the land. We have one pottery shard that says House of David on it. you know, we the evidence that we have for the people of Israel is is a lot of it is post-exile, and the stuff that we have pre-exile um, is way smaller and way less elaborate than the, the descriptions we have in the Bible. And that's okay because that's not the point of the Bible. Now, certainly, God intervening and acting in history is a part of the Bible. But again, the people of Israel that wrote down the Hebrew Bible and the, continue to write the New Testament 
didn't find the truth in proving it and their ability to prove it. They found it and it continuing to happen to continually, uh, you know, unravel, not unravel, be unrevealed. I have words to continue to be revealed as truth in their own lives as they experienced it. Because for them, the story of the people of God was a living document um, and it should be for us as well. Yeah. It was never meant to be a history book. And that's where I think a lot of people stumble Right is the fact that they think, oh, that this is because of biblical inerrancy. They think that this is supposed to be a history book, and it was never, it was never meant to be. And also the distinction that you're dealing with sixty six really different books, and some in a vastly different with vastly different ideas. Exactly, and I mean, now there certainly were people, you know, original writers that were trying to write history, but you also have to remember that history in the ancient Near East, writing history was radically different than what we consider writing history today, right? So again, like right. it goes back to this idea of truth and myth and how those things get interplayed. And But then the other big point, like you just said, like the Bible is not a book. You know, it's a collection of text of wildly different genres from poetry and wisdom to, you know, some form of history and gospels and letters and apocalypse. And so if anything, it's kind of like um, a library or at least like a curated library I use the language um, via my editor. I give her credit for this word um, of an anthology, I think is great because it's it's open-ended. It's something you can continue to contribute to, continue to tell stories, you know, from. Um, and so, you know, when we say the Bible says, or um, the Bible means, or this is biblical, I mean, ultimately those are meaningless phrases. I mean, like biblical marriage was, was one that uh, one of my billboards that got shot down, um, it said biblical marriage is a myth or there's no such thing as biblical marriage. And those are just statements of fact. I mean, biblical is just a meaningless sort of thing. I mean, the Bible describes marriage as being women as property or multiple wives or Paul says, don't get married at all, you know, and then there's the traditional quote unquote traditional marriage as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's so much deconstruction um, that needs to happen before we even pick up the Bible. Um, uh, these days for sure. So one more question, and this is, um, I think this is from the last chapter of the book or the next to last chapter of the book, where you talk about this concept of the bag of bones as described in Ezekiel. And we can kind of talk a little bit what, why you call it that. But, um, you talk a lot about like the end of Christianity and, um, where are we now? Like, cause it seems like, you know, the loudest, the, the loudest voices that are the worst voices in this country are just, uh, it's out of control. And a lot of Christians are just kind of just caught in all of this. And, and um, yeah, but, but let's talk about the kind of like that idea of the bag of bones. Like, how, is there a way to kind of to, to, to stop this or to, or is it unstoppable and just the natural progression? There's a, a preacher that I cite a couple times in the book. His name's Emory or Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was a pastor of Riverside Church uh, in New York City, and he preached a famous sermon uh, in the early 1900s called uh, "Shall the Fundamentalist Win?" And he was hmm. pushing back against the rise of fundamentalism and asking his congregation, "You know, are we going to let these people define what Christianity is, you know, to the rest of the world?" And the sad answer is, "Yeah, they won." Um, they won then and they retreated and then they, you know, have won again in the form of the disaster that is American Christianity today. And so, you know, I, I invoke the 
the famous story of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel, you know, because I think American Christianity, for all intents and purposes, is dead. Um, you know, it's mm. it, the Valley. That's a strong statement. Well, you know, are there people still in the strong pew? statement? You know, yeah, sure. Um, are there churches that are healthy and doing great? Yeah. Who exactly outside the church is hearing any good news? Like who exactly outside the church wants anything to do with American Christianity right now? And if that's the case, then then saying that we're not dead is a distinction without a difference because we're not growing. You know, churches are hemorrhaging members. Um, we're not growing numerically, but we're also not growing spiritually. You know, we've been absolutely corrupted by fundamentalism, but also 81% of white evangelicals voted for a man who's anti-Christ in every you know conceivable way. Um, and so, you know, I think, again, this kind of goes back to like some of the broader issues we talked about with scriptures, you know, we have to to be honest about who we are and where we are. Um, and I think that we're a valley of dry bones that has not a lot to offer. But I think there's always hope. I think there is always possibility for resurrection. I think there are good people still in the church doing good things. And I think what's so amazing about the story of the Bible and the story of the people of God and the story in particular of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones is that God stands ready, not just to act, but to act with us. I mean, one of the wild things, it's a bizarre vision that he has where he, these bones stand up and then you get muscles and tissues and they reform, but they're still dead. And they're dead until God tells Ezekiel to command the Ruach, to command the spirit. So he's basically telling Ezekiel to tell him what to do, which is a wild thing to have happen of people to tell God what to do. But it happens, you know, I mean, that that story is directly related, you know, in its context to the nation of Israel coming back from exile and and, and being reborn. Um, yeah, but it's in the Bible because we believe it continues to be applicable because we see its truth, not in the fact that there was ever a valley of dry bones, but because we find ourselves um, in a valley of dry bones. The truth of that story is the truth that we experience today. And it has a happy ending and it has hope um, for life and grace, but it, it it's only possible if that that spirit is allowed to breathe new life. And so I think that is only possible. I think the future of Christianity, I mean, Christianity is not going to go anywhere any, any more than, you know, it, it did. And then uh, like Europe, you know, there's still plenty of Christians in Europe, even if it's a post-Christian world. Um, but for practical purposes, for faith-based purposes, you know, we've got to toss out the old wineskin to use the image from Jesus. You know, we have to, to repent, to pour ashes on our heads, to, to start over again, and, and recognize how dire we actually are and how much in need of resurrection and, and new breath that we really are, because there's no one outside of our, our doors that want to come, you know, take up a spot on our pew right now, because even if there are churches out there and there are, I meet with great people. I met with some wonderful people this week that are trying to organize a, um, a community event for, for folks in the LGBT community to show them that their churches aren't just welcoming, but they're affirming. But for all of those, for those churches that are out there that are like that, like you said, they're, they're um, silenced by the shouts and screams and wails of awfulness in the name of Jesus. Um, you know, and it, it, I don't know that, there is a quick and easy answer. I, I don't think that there is, but I think that there is still 
a possibility that those bones can come back together if we let the spirit lead us into loving relentlessly and creatively and recklessly. I think that's very well said. And I think that we, I think it's because the church, well, I don't want to say the church, certain parts of the church have decided to play the political game. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, they have lost a good percentage of especially young people. I don't think young people, unless they are growing up in the church and they are part of that culture, I don't think young people are being very attracted to Christianity right now. And they have a negative viewpoint of Christianity as a whole because of what certain sectors of Christianity are saying and doing. Exactly. Exactly. And I always hear people immediately push out, well, not my church, you know, not my pastor. It does not matter because the overall message that people, like you said, especially young people um, here is one that is anything but good news. I mean, like I said, people outside the church that aren't sympathetic to it, that haven't grown up in Sunday school, the message they hear is the one they see on TV and is the news, the hate, the hate mongering, the exclusion, the bigotry, the homophobia, the trans, like all of those things. That's the message they hear from the church because those are the people in the church that are being the loudest. Um, and, and that's the reality. And until we confront that reality, we're still going to just be dead, dry bones, you know, baking under the yeah. sun um, for eternity. And, you know, we're, we're we're going back into the election cycle. I mean, here pretty soon. I mean, I think the first debate is in August. That's not yep. that far away. Bunch crazy. And oh, so it's starting. So these 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 things are going to come up, and the way that it's just it, it really that this really crazy kind of just core fundamentalist evangelical that it is just it's just it just really wants to take over i mean it's crypto fascist is really what it is i mean that's what we talk about a lot yeah that's I mean, really what if you want to connect back to if i can plug unraptured again mm -hmm. um you know if you want to know the secret identity of the horror of babylon it's the church babylon is the roman empire um in uh apocalyptic imagery and in, in the book of revelation and it's the church that's gotten into bed with the empire and it's the church that's i mean the people of god that have done that over and over again um throughout this the bible i mean if you go back and you read carefully there's a reason half the bible of or half the hebrew bible is old testaments because the people of god didn't follow the first half you know um they're constantly being polytheistic they're worshiping other gods they're going over to other kings they're trusting in other people um they're committing spiritual adultery i mean it's so bad that one of the prophets hosea actually marries a prostitute um to make that very point because the the old testament prophets were just the best their image oh everything about them was wonderful um but I mean, <laughs> he's making he's making the point you know in very vivid way that that the church has committed or the people of God have committed idolatry by, you know, wedding, getting into bed with other gods. Um, and that's exactly what we've done today. Now that's not to say that the no. church shouldn't be political. Everything is political. I mean, Jesus was killed um, by, by the state. I mean, he was a victim of political violence, 
But there's a difference between being politically active and then getting in bed with a political party and, you know, creating tribal warfare um, like that. And so, yeah, I, you know, maybe maybe uh, Tom Cruise has got it all figured out and Lord Zenu will emerge from the volcano here soon and uh, rescue us all. You know, this stuff makes me think, too. There's always scandals um, that come out about some of, you know, the most vocal of of people who espouse the most fundamentalist holiness. And do you think on some level that there is kind of a belief in an elect and that this fundamentalist interpretation is really for the masses that make them more, you know, more easy to control? But, you know, again and again, you see that there seems to be more of a permissiveness among this leadership. So it's without getting too conspiratorial I mean, or anything. I know those shows called well, conspiratorial. Case in point but, would be like, uh, uh, you know, Jerry Falwell's son, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, you know, the pool boy stuff. I mean, you know, the, so these the, swinger, the swinger lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think and that's what makes inerrancy so ultimately toxic is that it is a weapon to easily be wielded by people in authority to silence dissent. They do it all the time. So like if you publicly criticize a church leader, they'll immediately invoke Matthew 18. Oh, this should be taken privately. Heck no, it should not. Like this needs to be out in the open. I mean, when you when you hide things behind closed doors, you get priests molesting children and pastors molesting youth group members and all sorts of heinous sorts of things. Um, So inerrancy absolutely is a core pillar of Christofascism, both politically, but also, and in particularly in the church, because it's used to beat down dissidents. Like it creates Um, space for corruption. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Without a doubt, because what you're doing is saying, um, I have been anointed by God. I am the mouthpiece of God. These are the words of God. If you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with God. Um, and so it's, you know, religion is always teetering on on the edge of toxicity, but this biblical inerrancy pours fuel or pours gasoline on the fire um, and allows these guys, almost exclusively guys, um, to stay in power, to wield that power, and to be protected um, from criticism because don't lay a hand on the Lord's servant, you know, is another verse that you could just wield out there. So, yeah, the problem with biblical inerrancy is not just that it's just absurdly untrue um, or even that it is theologically unnecessary because perfection is not a prerequisite for communicating truth. Um, the biggest problem is exactly what you said is the toxicity that it breeds, that it cultivates, that it empowers, and that it defends. I think that that's a good place for us to stop. Um, let's, uh, Zach, please tell us where people can find the book, also where people can find you, find your uh, your your internet presence um, as well. Um, my social media handles are um, almost all uh, at Zach Hunt, but there's two A's in Zach because some jerk stole my name years ago on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm on Twitter. Uh, the easiest platform, I mean, if you go to zachhunt.net, just one egg, okay. make sure things are confusing. Um, you can find, you know, all my stuff there, but I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, started a TikTok account. I'm very bad at it. 
a um, couple <laughs> YouTube videos, and then you can find me at the uh, Strange Reality Conference uh, in November. Yes, sir. As a, I was about to say that. Yes, Strange Realities Conference coming up November third, November third through the fifth. Third and the fourth at SAR Nashville. Sergio and I are about to. Uh, after we end this interview, we're about, we're going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, give you guys some more information. Yeah, but uh, Zach hey, Adam, will be there. Real, yeah, yeah, he'll be there. And real quick though, Zach, can you uh, tell everyone the bill what the billboards that are uh, displaying yeah. out there right now say? Yes. So there are three billboards in rotation. Um, they're on I sixty five. They're on the north side um, near Armory Drive, but you'll have to drive south to see them. Um, one of them says the Bible isn't what actually hold on. I remember which ones actually made it. Uh, one of them says God didn't write the Bible. People did. Another one says um, it's OK to admit when the Bible is wrong. And the third one says you are not going to hell. Wow. We were joking before the show about how that's pretty refreshing because if you drive through any uh, rural highway in the South, you're constantly reminded how you are going to hell. So that'd be great to see. It's almost like you you could call it good news. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Yeah. It's kind of weird like that, huh? All right, Zach. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Stay on the line just for just a little bit, but uh, guys, we're going to close this section out. Surfiel and I are going to come back and uh, speak for a few minutes about Strange Realities Conference. And by the way, tickets are up, but you're going to find a little bit about that in just a moment. Okay, guys, we are back. And uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the uh, Strange Realities Conference. 2023. Uh, This is the... 2023, yeah. Fifth annual. The so this will be the fifth number five. Yeah. So this will be the fifth. Yeah. Even though we did the first one four years ago, but that's you know. Uh. But yeah, coming up November third through the fifth, and tickets are available. Um, they've been available. We actually sold a couple of in-person tickets. Um, I don't. I don't think I actually told you that, but we did sell some in-person tickets. Through, yeah. I see him coming. Yeah, I think, I think just like on Sunday or something like that. Yeah, uh, from when we're recording this. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Yeah, but um, so the way that we're doing this um is a little different this year, and I probably have already said this before, but I will say it again. So Friday and Saturday, November. Well, first of all, we're doing it in November. We've been doing it in October. Yeah. Uh, so for 2020, we did it in September, but we've been doing it as I are in October. Second I of decided, all, the speaker list is not complete. First of all, yeah, I was, yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to get to that, but it's not complete. Yeah. So, you know, um, but we're doing it in November and this is November uh, 3rd through the 5th. Now, the way we're doing it is, on the third, the evening of the third, which will be Friday evening and all day Saturday, we are doing that at SIR Nashville, where we have done it for the past two years and in 2019. But Sunday, the fifth is going to be online only. So that means that that's going to be the presentations people are going to be giving from their homes. Right. Um, we are not going to be doing anything on site at, at, at SIR on November 5th. But there will um, be. Plenty of stuff to do, and hopefully right. that'll provide everyone 
who's there physically time to commune with the speakers and each other and uh, do all right. the really fun secret stuff. So tickets are seventy dollars um, for in person. That also gets you into any of the online stuff. So on Sunday, you can also watch that as well. And also thirty dollars gets you in online for the whole entire thing. So the entire conference is online. It's just that we are going to be on site on Friday and Saturday, and on the fifth will be just online presentations only. So, right. but if you're got an online ticket, you watch the whole thing online. Right. And this will all be recorded as usual. So if you come physically, then, uh, if you want to hang out and do other stuff on Sunday, you can watch the presentations that were streamed Sunday at a later time. So I will go over the lineup, uh, that we have so far. There were actually going to be, there's actually going to be probably one or two people that are going to, well, maybe one more person that's going to be added to the lineup um, for the, for the, at SAR. And I think two people that will, two or three people are going to be added for uh, the online only. But, but so far, here's the lineup that we have. I will just go down the list. And by the way, if you guys have seen the graphic that we put out, uh, Serfiel had this great idea to have the um, speakers as ascended masters. <laughs> so everybody has this like halo and a sheen right behind them. Um, so returning, we have Tim Banal. We have Nathan Isaac. We have Steven Snyder, also known as Recluse. We have Kiki Dombrowski and Ren Collier. They are returning from last year. And also, um, some of them were about the year before that. Joshua Cutchin will be speaking this year. Uh, did awesome. not have him speaking last year just because he wasn't sure he could be there, but he ended up there anyway and ended up doing the uh, Q&A session on the end of Saturday night. Very much appreciate Brent Rain Brent Rains is recording, uh, is returning. Sorry, Brent Rains is, re is returning. Uh, we had him speak in 2020 and 2021. And Zach Hunt, who you guys just heard, yep. he uh, spoke in 2019, and he is returning from all the way back. And we have a couple of new people. Um, we've got Tobias Wayland. He will be there. And also a friend of mine, Cheslin Vance, who is going to be doing a hypnosis workshop. Now, you guys have not heard her on the show, but uh, did do an episode of Nevaeh's Nightmare with her, where Nevaeh got um, past life regression. So you guys can go see that if you're going to see what she's about, but she will be on the show at some point. I'm getting now, I left one person out getting hypnotized. So I did leave one person out, but because that person is not a speaker this year, we have an MC. We have a master of ceremonies and that will be a speaker from last year. That will be Steve Berg. All and right. he is very, very happy about that. Uh, yes. On the online side, on Sunday so far, I have scheduled Chris Ernst, Aaron Gullius, David Metcalf, and Timothy Renner. And like I said, expect about two or three more people to be added to that list. So mm -hmm. I'm not done adding people to that yet. And also, Sergio, I believe that you said you wanted to speak. 
This yes. is a conversation we just had not that long ago. So I think this year we will probably start on Friday night with you. Okay. Uh, you want to talk about about Nashville. So Yeah, I think I'll I think it would make sense. I think it'd be cool to expound on some some esoteric aspects of this city that will be hosting that my for, my former city for a long time, but now I am I'm gone, but this will be a nice little tribute. Yeah. And hey, you know, who knows, maybe we'll eventually do this thing in Seattle and, you know, the we, hotels will be cheaper. Esoteric Seattle. The what? The hotels will be cheaper. The hotels will be cheaper. It's odd. Yeah. Well, you know, don't even get me started on this last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> How expensive hotels must have been. Uh, but that is the that is the lineup for this year's Strange Reality, the still not finished lineup. Um, I will be as I get more people, I will be posting about that and adding them to the graphic. So you will so you will see that as well. Um now there's gonna be presentations. I mentioned Cheslin, she's doing a workshop, but uh Rin, I talked to him. Rin was actually here. Yeah. And um he, we talked about that and he's going to do another kind of ritual thing that's more interactive and he's going to do that when he wants to do that on friday night and of course kiki she wants to do a tarot workshop so we're going to do that and i have no idea what everyone else is going to do usually that's kind of a i don't know that until maybe like a month or two before the conference mm-hmm. and um, we'll, let, we'll definitely let everybody know and be advertising that and giving yeah. previews Right. So we will be working on also just getting you guys like a list of hotels, places that you can, that, that you can stay. Um, usually we've been, po- we've been uh, sending the speakers to a particular location. So we'll try to find like a hotel around there that you guys can find out, you know, what not really going to have any like special rates. Cause a lot of time people didn't really take advantage of that. Right. Um, but um we will be we will be having speakers at a particular hotel, and we'll just keep you guys posted on that. So I would say like start reaching out, whoops. you know, start yeah. reaching out ahead of time and collaborating with people because uh, there are a whole yeah. lot of people who became good friends, you know, last year. Uh, maybe you guys want to split an Airbnb or something like that. If you need advice for uh, areas that may be less expensive to stay in that are still not too far away, because Nashville is not that large. Uh, just uh, let us know or uh, ask us questions. Right. So um, that's pretty much the rundown on Strange Realities 2023. Uh, expect to hear us talk more about it because that's going to be the main thing for about six more months. And it's our own election add, cycle. That, exactly. Till the election cycle. Just to add uh, as well, we are still doing the monthly meetups, monthly presentations. This month will, will be Vincent Drewell. Uh, he is going to be doing one for us and that will, you'll hear more about that, uh, hopefully next week, but that's going to be on May 24th. So about a week and a half after this show, uh, comes out and that is for our patrons. And there's also a charge for, uh, on Eventbrite If you guys want to, if you guys want to see that. So, uh, check that out May 24th. That would be at 8 PM Eastern time just to make it easy for everybody. I have to worry about now the, the time zone thing with Surfiel. I have to be like, you know, we have to match our time zones now, which isn't too hard since we're only like two hours apart from each other. So that's pretty much it. Um, 
We're looking forward to seeing you guys either there at SAR or online. And Sir Phil, is there anything else that you wanted to add? We can close it out. Another way to view that presentation that Vincent is going to be giving is by joining the $10 pledge level at patreon.com slash conspiranormal and joining Correct. the mystic crew of conspiranormal. Uh, so we are going to try to be doing those uh, as often as possible leading up to the conference. Correct. Yes. And those are, those, those are a little more interactive. Absolutely. Uh, just because um, you, you can, you can actually watch it. You watch it on zoom and you can ask questions later and you, and you can talk. But if you want to be really interactive, you come to the conference and then you can meet people in person. So that's how it goes. So, all right. I think we'll close it out. Um, But next week, actually, I want to say this next week, we're going to be talking to some people that are going to be part of the conference, kind of our more official kind of launch for the conference. Uh, We will be doing that next week. And until then, we'll talk to you later on Conspiranormal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.